Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Catch UFC 277 at Walters this Saturday night as Juliana Pena takes on Amanda Nunes in Dallas. The fight card begins at 9. Register at waltersdc.com to receive one free spicy margarita. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Runners second and third, now infield back, the 0-1 to Goldschmidt. Bounces away, gets away from Ruiz, he doesn't know where it is, it's toward the first base dugout. And so Edmonds going to score on the wild pitch. I think that ball hit the home plate umpire, and Ruiz was looking behind him. And the ball deflected off to the first base side. And so the Cardinals take a 2-1 lead on the wild pitch. Now the 2-1. Swing to drive, right center toward the gap. No one's going to catch this one, it's way back, and it is gone. A line drive home run. One pitch after the pop-up is dropped, and it's 6-1 to one Cardinals. Lars Newbar with his fifth home run of the season, and the Cardinals with back-to-back homers against Sanchez here in the sixth. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July 30th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. The Nats have begun what is perhaps their final full series with Juan Soto as a Nat. We on Friday had more chum in the water regarding the Juan Soto situation. We'll get to the latest shortly. We also on Friday had the future of the Nats. Their 2022 first round draft pick Elijah Green at Nationals Park and he put on quite the show during batting practice. That was fun to see. But we also on Friday night had a rematch of game one of the 2019 NLCS. Anibal Sanchez of the Nats versus Miles Michaelis of the St. Louis Cardinals in game one of a three-game series at Nationals Park. If only Friday night's game had gone as a 2019 NLCS game one had gone. Interestingly, that game was on a Friday night just like this game was on a Friday night. Here's the 0-2. Swing a ground ball, roll to first. Zimmerman has it down to a knee. He'll step on first. Anibal Sanchez has tossed seven hitless shutout innings here at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. Friday night's game here in 2022, nowhere near as sweet as 2019 NLCS Game 1. There was no Nats win. There was no Anibal Sanchez flirting with a no-hitter. There was only the Nats' 19th loss in 24 games. 6-2 was the final. A few things have changed, Mark, since that Friday night in October of 2019, I guess. It just a little bit, Al. I mean, we weren't doing a podcast back then, so that's changed, obviously. Yeah, it was pretty striking to see that and consider just how much has changed 
for both franchises, but for this one in particular in the wrong direction. Since that night, that was a great night. It was the start of just a dominant LCS for their rotation, leading to the sweep. But really, that was the pinnacle of Anibal Sanchez's time as a national. And where we are right now is not the pinnacle at all for him. He had his moments in this game. But as we've seen in all three of his starts now, it doesn't take much for the wheels to come off. When he gets hit, he gets hit really hard, and it happened on a back-to-back sequence in the sixth inning. And now you're talking about a game in which they're once again down by a bunch of runs and with very little reason to think that they can mount a rally, and they did not. Well, very interestingly, literally minutes after this game ended on Friday night, we had news of a major trade in baseball breaking, and the trade involves the Reds. The Reds are trading Luis Castillo to the Seattle Mariners, and the Reds are getting back four prospects, including three of the Mariners' top five prospects. If you go by MLB Pipeline, two of the prospects are top 100 prospects. Uh, Shortstop Noel V. Marte, the number 18 prospect in baseball per Pipeline, and shortstop Edwin Arroyo, who is the number 93 prospect per MLB pipeline. And I bring this up because, well, if you're doing the let's play negotiating game and let's make a deal, right? If you're Mike Rizzo, you say, well, if that's what Luis Castillo goes for, two top 100 prospects and three of a team's top five prospects, well, what does that mean for Juan Soto? So I think this stuff does matter right now. I mean, we know that the Nats are commanding a sky-high trade. The reporting has been that Rizzo isn't even negotiating with teams, that he has set his price and he hears from teams. And if the teams are willing to meet that price, then they talk. And if not, Rizzo moves on. So I think this is actually good news if you're talking about trying to maximize the Juan Soto Hall, if in fact you're going to trade him. I think this Luis Castillo trade is notable and encouraging. Well, it is in the respect of if that's what the Mariners were willing to give up, if that's what the Reds could get for Castillo, who I believe is under contract for a year plus, as opposed to Soto, who is two plus years, well, then you think obviously Juan Soto gets more than that, also because he's Juan Soto. So yeah, and I think that's where Rizzo, by maybe playing this out and waiting to see what other moves are made, it could in theory help set the market even higher for him and for Soto. The one aspect of it I would say that's maybe not as good is I think that just knocked the Mariners out of contention. For Juan Soto. Now, they maybe weren't at the forefront of this, but they're definitely a name that has been brought up. If they just gave up three of their top five prospects to get Luis Castillo, I'm just not sure they're going to have enough left in the pipeline there to satisfy Rizzo's needs. So that might take one of the teams out of the equation. I continue to believe that when it comes to this, Mike Rizzo is in the advantageous position here. He has the higher ground because he doesn't have to do anything. So he can set his demands and see if anyone will meet them. And if they don't, well, so be it, we move on. But those demands are probably going to be pretty high and rightfully so. If the Mariners are out, and I would tend to think that they probably are on Soto, there doesn't seem to be a shortage of teams interested in Soto. Just going off the latest reports, you hear about San Diego. You hear about St. Louis, which the Nats are currently facing. You hear about the Dodgers. We have heard about Texas. We have heard about the Mets. The Yankees have come up. San Francisco has come up. So, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of teams out there that could do this. We'll see if the Nats end up doing this. I thought, though, the most interesting thing in the Soto saga that came out on Friday came from Barry's Verluga of the Washington Post. He put this out there, and I think this is actually one of these things that could mean multiple things. So Barry, in a tweet on Friday afternoon, said, 
regarding the Nats potentially negotiating a contract extension with Soto prior to the deadline. So, you know, trying to make like a last ditch effort to get Soto to sign an extension, quote, my understanding is that the Nationals are not making a new offer to Juan Soto. If they get the right deal, they'll make it. If they don't, they won't, i.e., no more negotiating on an extension. If we get the right trade offer, we're going to trade him. If we don't, then we're not going to trade him. You know, I'm thinking about this situation. I know you are. I know everyone listening to this podcast is thinking about it. I don't quite get why the Nats are operating like there's a gun to their head to where they have to make a decision on Juan Soto right now. If, in fact, the sale of the team is going to be completed this offseason, I don't understand why you just can't wait to see what new ownership does and then decide on Soto. I get that you would be trading him and the team getting him would be getting him for, in theory, two pennant races and not three. And that's a big selling point on Soto right now that you get him for three potential pennant races. But I don't think that it's going to take down what you have to give up to get him by that much. And I think the cost of doing that is worth it because you then have an opportunity to sign him, assuming that you want to sign him to an extension moving forward. And so I thought about this. Is it possible that the learners are acting like this right now because they're not selling the team in totality? That what we've kind of dismissed might actually end up happening, that they're just taking on new minority investors, but that they're actually owning the team moving forward. Otherwise, I don't get why there is this screaming need for the Nats to address the Soto situation fully right now prior to Tuesday's trade deadline. Well, that's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought about it really in those terms. I've got no indication that that's where this is headed, that they're not actually going to be selling the team. I suppose it's still possible. It's been very secretive, the whole process. Uh, I think we do know they have been meeting with potential owners, though, and the, the feeling around the baseball community certainly is that they are selling the team and not just a portion of it. But I am with you on this idea of they don't have to do anything right now. But I, I think this underscores really what Rizzo is essentially saying, which is, I'm going to set my price if anyone's willing to meet it, and that price is awfully high, by the way, then yeah, we'll do it because I'm going to look at that and say, I can't say no to that deal. That's a deal that as hard as it is to lose Juan Soto, that's a deal that is going to make us a better team and give us a chance to win sooner because we're getting so much in return for it. How could I possibly say no to that? But if they don't meet that price, then he can say, okay, fine. We explored it. That's what we said we were going to do all along. We didn't. We didn't have to make a move this week. We can wait this out. Let's see what happens with new owners. Let's see what happens with the team. Let's see even next winter if there are other teams that maybe are interested in Soto and willing to offer up something that they couldn't offer up right now. I think that fits in exactly with what the philosophy, you know, would be. I guess I would say if you're the learners, you don't have to do this, right? But also if you're Juan Soto, if you want to make another offer to him at this point, do you really think it's going to change anything? Do you think he's all of a sudden going to say yes? Unless that the new offer is so beyond what they've already offered, and why would they do that now? So to me, if I'm Juan Soto, I'm probably not going to take any new offer. And my preference would be to wait and see what happens with new owners, because maybe this winter there is a whole new discussion to be had and terms that I can live with and want to stay here for. So again, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the next few days, but I do think the Nationals are in a strong position here in that they can set their terms, see if anyone will meet them, and if they don't, okay, so be it. We'll move on. 
It's just to me, the fact that the Nats are very comfortable shopping Soto, listening to trade offers for Soto, suggests that they wouldn't mind trading Soto. And I think you have to say to yourself, so why is that? Well, maybe it's because the learners don't want to pay Soto what he truly wants. So then you come back to that with, well, but they're not going to own the team in a few months. So then that makes me think, well, maybe they are staying on as owners. Maybe this assumption we've had that they're just selling the entirety of their ownership stake is wrong and that maybe they are just taking on more minority investment. I don't know. It's strange to me, though. The Nats are almost being like overly aggressive here in shopping Soto. And normally I'm a champion of that. But in this case, for this player, I'm kind of like you could wait until the new ownership comes in and then decide to get aggressive if you really want to keep him. And in, in theory, right, they want to keep him. He's a great player. He's a, he's a franchise player. Why wouldn't you do all that you can to try to keep him? Why would you say, we made you an offer, everyone agrees, or for the most part anyway, it was a below market value offer, and that's going to be it? And then you're going to trade him come Tuesday, and that's it? It's gone, and it's over? Like, I just, it seems to me like it's almost like you're overreacting to everything right now. And it's almost like a basketball, you know, like you say, Take a timeout, all right? Let the run stop. I feel like that's what we need here with this Soto situation. You don't have to do anything right now. No, they they don't. But when you say that you wonder if they've been overly aggressive in shopping him, is it the Nationals have been over aggressive in shopping him? Or is it the rest of the baseball world being over aggressive in buying into this idea that he is going to be traded? And so it's an open market and, hey, let's all go all in on this. That maybe where this whole thing backfired was the Nationals wanting to get the word out that they were at least exploring the possibility, but not expecting it to be the frenzy that it became. And that that's really where the issue is that maybe they never seriously felt like the outcome was going to be a trade, but they wanted to say, okay, well, we don't know if we can sign him or not. So let's find out what could we get for him. I wonder if this is really more about the reaction of the rest of the baseball world just assuming things without maybe necessarily knowing it to be true. Well, if they thought that saying that they were open to trading Soto wasn't going to become a big deal, then I really question their judgment because I don't know how you could have ever thought that that was not going to become a big deal. And to me, when the leaking of him rejecting the 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer was done, and we presume that that was done by the Nats side, I think you know, again, unless you just have like no sense of things. And I don't think that the Nats have no sense of things. I think you know what you're doing when you do that. Like that feels like the beginning of the end when you put something like that out there and you see Soto's reaction and you see the nastiness with which Scott Boris responded to it with, you know, the flight gate out to LA and everything like that. So it just makes me wonder like, why, why did it feel like the end had to come so suddenly here? And maybe the end isn't coming, right? We don't know with certainty that he's about to be traded, but the Zverluga tweet got me thinking, on Friday. So we'll see. Juan Soto on Friday night in this uh, 6-2 loss for the Nats to the Cardinals. One for four with a single. Had a leadoff single to right field in the bottom of the fourth. On the second pitch of the plate appearance, he showed bunt on the first pitch of the plate appearance. Michaelis throws. Soto bluffs a bunt, pulls the bat back, and takes one too high. It was hard to tell. Was he serious or was he just kind of screwing? It looked like he was screwing with Nolan Arenado in doing that. So I don't know. Was this another instance of Soto actually trying to bunt or was he just trying to have some fun? I don't think it was 100% serious because he actually was like 
he went, he moved so far up, he was actually out of the batter's box by the time the pitch crossed the plate. So I don't think that was a serious attempt to bunt. Maybe he was just trying to throw everybody off and make him think otherwise, and he was going to take the pitch regardless. But that was a little bit of a weird moment, especially against a righty. You know, maybe against a lefty, you've seen it sometimes. But I don't know. At this point, Juan Soto is just going to do what he wants to do, whatever he thinks he needs to do to get himself in the right mindset. That one was weird, and it you know wasn't an especially memorable game for him either. No, and it was another one of these just nothing happening games offensively for the Nats. Just two runs, uh, just eight hits, seven of which were singles. The Nats had a Cesar Hernandez double on Friday night. That was the only extra base hit for the Nats in the game. The Nats drew just one walk, went 0 for 9 with runners in scoring position. Josh Bell did have a good game. He went 2 for 2 with two singles, a walk, and an RBI sack fly. Luis Garcia, one for three with a single and an RBI sack fly, but otherwise just like nothing happening for the Nats offensively in this game. It was, you know, it was a sleepy offensive performance, and we've seen so many of these so far this season. And you think about with this offense, right, and we've had so many conversations about it, especially right now, there really are few like offensive eruptions. We did have a few of those. Remember, like we would say, well, when they win, they hit well, and when they lose, they don't hit well. Lately, they're not winning at all, basically. So maybe this, you know, is part and parcel with that. But boy, like, when's the last time we had one of those offensive eruption games from the Nets? It feels like it has been a long time, and it feels like we've had so few of them over the last, say, month or so. Yeah, they had, you know, two innings in LA the other night that were exciting, but that's all it was, and they had done nothing to play it prior to that point. Now, that said, they outhit the Cardinals in this game, eight to six. And I think this was just another perfect example of two aspects of this offense that have been so glaringly bad this year. Number one, complete lack of power. Certainly a lack of power with runners on base with a chance at, you know, three-run homers and things like that to produce big innings. They just have not done that at all. And then secondly, with that is when they did have some opportunities, they again, they can't even get the ball in the air. Runner on third, oh, ground ball, strikeout, ground ball cannot get it going there at all. And that has been a consistent theme for them all year long. And then you look at the flip side, the Cardinals in this game in the third inning score three runs via an infield single, another single, a walk, two stolen bases, and a wild pitch and a couple of ground outs. Like the Cardinals executed to perfection there. The Nats do not have the ability to do that. And then they also don't have the ability to hit for power. You put that together and this is what you get, a team that scores two runs a night. There are 30 teams in Major League Baseball. The Nats are 29th out of the 30 teams in home runs this season, 77 home runs. And the Nats have played 101 games. That's actually a good amount of games. There are teams that have played like, say, 99 games this season. So this isn't due to like the Nats having not played as many games as some other teams. Like, no, the Nats have just been woeful this season when it comes to to hitting for power. And, you know, we've harped on it. I think it's the number one offensive problem for this team this season. And uh, we continue to see that pop up as an issue. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small town charm and big league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Pitch count at 103 for Sanchez. He fires. Swing a high drive right field deep. Soto back on this one to the warning track at the wall and it's gone. Down into the Nationals' bullpen, a two-run homer for Nolan Gorman makes it 5-1 St. Louis. Anibal Sanchez was the Nats' starting pitcher on Friday night, like we said. And, you know, for a while, it looked like he was doing okay. I mean, I guess, you know, you have to say by 2022 Anibal Sanchez standards because you are grading on a curve with this guy this season. But Sanchez ultimately did not do so okay. Six runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up six hits, two home runs, and four singles. Issued two walks and a wild pitch. Had four strikeouts, but he over his five and two-thirds innings threw 108 pitches. I mean, that is Eric Fetty-like and then some in terms of pitch inefficiency. 108 pitches in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up the three runs in the top of the third. Like you said, a lot of small ball in that inning. The three runs coming on two singles, a walk, and a wild pitch. The three runs scoring on two RBI groundouts in a run-scoring wild pitch. And then came the top of the six, uh, during which Sanchez allowed three runs, uh, issued a one-out eight-pitch walk of Nolan Arenado, gave up a two-out full count, two-run homer to Nolan Gorman to right field for a 5-1 Cardinals lead, and then gave up a two-out solo homer to Lars Nootbar to right center field for a 6-1 Cardinals lead. And if you didn't know where the game was being played, you would have thought that this game was in St. Louis upon hearing the reaction to this home run because there were loud, and I mean loud, chants of Newt, as in Newt Bar, after that home run. That was something. I don't know that people will always think of Cardinals fans necessarily as traveling, but boy, we had more than a few Cardinals fans at Nationals Park on Friday night. 
it was a sizable group of them. They also stood and gave Albert Pujols an ovation for his first at bat. And some Nats fans did as well. It's his last season. He's a one of the all-time greats. But it's hard to tell because you look down at the stands and everybody's wearing red. And so it's hard to tell which team it is. But then you look a little closer and you see what they're cheering for. There was a sizable group of Cardinal fans among the 30,000 who were at the game. For the record, those who don't know, Lars Newtbar is his real name. This is a real Major League Baseball player. That is his name, Lars Newtbar. And the first of the home runs by Gorman, Nolan Gorman, I couldn't help but think about this as he's rounding the bases. He's considered one of their very best young players. And any trade package for Juan Soto that the Cardinals might be involved in pretty much always has his name very near the top of the list. So if you're Mike Rizzo and you're watching that game from your suite and you see one of their best young infielders hit a ball a long way to right field to help his team win, that can only help whatever image you already had of him. It's only going to strengthen it if that is a guy that you're thinking about asking for in a trade for Soto. So I, I thought that was notable. And then the other thing, that three-run rally in the third, we glossed over the two stolen bases. They were uncontested stolen bases. Anibal Sanchez, since joining the Nationals in 2019, has allowed 29 of 31 runners to steal off him. He is incredibly slow to the plate. This is not a case of the catchers not being good enough. He is that slow. They ran at will against him. When you do that, when they know that's what you're going to do, you're just gifting them runs. And that's how they score three runs, despite only two hits in the inning. And both of them were singles, and one of them didn't even leave the infield. That's how you do it. You know, I know there's a lot of other things to talk about with Annabelle Sanchez, but the stolen base, just inability to even control the running game at all is a huge problem. Annabelle Sanchez now has made three major league starts for the Nats this season. He has allowed 13 runs in 15 and two-thirds innings. So, you know, this is what it is. And, I mean, I don't think we need to break news by saying this is a road-to-nowhere situation. I think we all get that. We understand why he's starting games for the Nats. They have basically nothing else to go to. It's one of the great indictments of this organization right now that Annabelle Sanchez in 2022 is a part of of this rotation. And remember, he was supposed to be a part of the rotation entering the season. This isn't like some desperation thing necessarily. He was supposed to start the regular season in the rotation. But you look at what he's done so far here since he got healthy, or at least healthy enough to begin starting games for the Nats this year. Three starts, 15 and two-thirds innings, 13 runs. Like That's what you got right now. And yeah, he can't hold a runner to save his life. That's a problem as well. But you know, Unless Cade Cavalli is coming up sometime soon to replace Anibal, I don't know. And you know, if the Nats do trade Juan Soto, and we know that they're going to end up trading other guys, I think these Anibal Sanchez starts are going to become really difficult to stomach if you're a Nats fan. Like, it's hard enough right now if the Nats really do clean house, and that includes Soto being gone, and you got to watch Sanchez every every five games go out there. I think that's going to be a real challenge if you're a Nats fan. There's a lot about the final two months of the season. I don't want to go there yet because we don't know for sure. But there is a lot about the last two months of the season that could be really, really difficult. It's one thing to play out the string with a bunch of young guys and you say, hey, we're going to lose 110, but we're going to find out 
who uh, might be a part of this for the future. It's a whole different thing to lose that many games with guys who, as you said, are a road to nowhere. And unfortunately, I think there are going to be a good number of those guys left. Guys who were acquired going into the season with the intention of maybe trading them in July. Cesar Hernandez, Michael Franco, and others. And even Nelson Cruz, for all we know. There's a potential that a lot of those guys are still going to be here in August and September. And that makes for, in a lot of ways, the worst kind of baseball. Meaningless baseball with players who are not at all potentially part of your long-term solution. It's tough. You know, I mean, it's hard enough with everything right now. It's going to become particularly challenging if you have to continue to watch Sanchez like this and see the state of the team post trading away a bunch of guys, including Soto. And, you know, I hope everyone knows none of this is like personal against Anibal Sanchez or anything like that. But if you're being objective and you're looking at the state of the Nats and how the team gets good again, it's not through starting Anibal Sanchez. And, you know, I know everyone gets that, but I mean, it really does stand out now. Like, at least if he was pitching semi-well, you can maybe have some fun with that. Like, no, he's giving up about a run per inning so far, and there's no reason to think that is going to get better. Well, if you're looking for some silver linings, we can throw a few out at you. First of all, the Nats bullpen is on some kind of a run right now. And Friday night was another really good night for the Nats pen. Three Nats relievers combined for three and a third perfect innings with six strikeouts. Jordan Weems, one and a third perfect innings. Victor Arano, perfect top of the eighth with two strikeouts. And Hunter Harvey, a perfect top of the ninth with three strikeouts on just 12 pitches. Uh, He wasn't far from having an immaculate inning. So off the really nice work by the Nats bullpen at the Dodgers, we see more bullpen excellence on Friday night. And again, you know, you go through these names, Weems and Arano and Harvey. I mean, the Nats are just trying to piecemeal things together right now with this bullpen with Tanner Rainey out. And, you know, you can't just always go to Kyle Finnegan and Carl Edwards Jr. And, you know, we know with Finnegan, sometimes he's not even on. But man, these relievers, and it feels like a lot of them right now are coming through. They've gotten it from everybody. Everybody has contributed in some way over the last week. And that's six of the last seven batters they faced in this game. They struck out. Okay. Now, yeah, it's a six to two game. So maybe it's not a super competitive high leverage spot, but those are still some pretty good hitters in the Cardinals lineup that are striking out against them. Hunter Harvey, (laughs) look, I know the history there and you're just going to say, well, eventually he's going to get hurt and you can't count on anything there. But boy, when he's out there, he's really good. You can see why he's been so highly touted for so long and just makes you say, man, if he could just somehow stay healthy, they could actually have something here. We'll see. Knock on wood for right now. He appears to be healthy and he's been quite good. It's been fun to watch. It's unfortunate that a team that so many times over the years when the team was really good and was done in by a bad bullpen, now you have a team that's awful with a great bullpen and so they're not able to take advantage of it at all. Yeah, and the bullpen is peaking during a time in which the Nats aren't winning at all. Like, that's what's particularly torturous about this, that in this stretch in which the Nats have lost 19 to 24 games, we have seen a lot of good from the bullpen. And so you feel like, man, all of these good bullpen outings are like for naught, for nothing, because because the Nats aren't hitting and the starting pitching hasn't been nearly good enough. Yeah, you know, Hunter Harvey, it's something else because he's going to get hurt again. Everyone knows that. He can't stay healthy. It's just an unfortunate reality about his career. His body is such that it just breaks down. But when he is healthy for those brief periods of time, 
He's excellent. I mean, he throws 97, 98, 99. He's a flamethrower, and he can be effective. And we've seen that. This season, when he has pitched for the Nats, he has been effective. We've seen it from the get-go, basically, during his time with the Nats. When he's out there and he's feeling well, he's a more than competent reliever. Yeah. And, you know, you see why they took a, a flyer on him. Why wouldn't you in their position? And you just hope that, number one, he'd stay healthy. And number two, that he would have some opportunities to pitch in meaningful situations. You know, we'll see how this goes the rest of the season. If he can keep himself on the mound for a while longer, you know, he's under team control for a while because he's barely any big league time. So he actually could be a building block for you. You can't count on that happening because of the history, as we've discussed. But there's no reason not to keep putting him out there. And they're watching him. They're being careful not to pitch him back-to-back days and things like that to try to avoid anything else happening. But for now, ride the wave while you can and, and hope that he can somehow keep it going and keep himself on the mound, at least for the rest of the season. Yeah, it's so funny. You mentioned Hunter Harvey being under team control. He's not due to be a free agent until after the 2025 season. Understand this in case you're not aware of this. Hunter Harvey was taken by the Orioles with the number 22 pick in the 2013 MLB draft. It is now 2022, nine years since he was selected in the MLB draft, and he's not coming up for free agency until 2026 because he was in the minors for so long, because he couldn't stay healthy. I mean, that really is something. I think we need a chart. Who's going to reach free agency first? Yadiel Hernandez, Paolo Espino, or Hunter Harvey? I'm not sure. But if we could time it out that all three reach free agency in the same offseason, I think that would be heaven. I think that is the definition of heaven. All three of those guys in free agency in the same offseason. The winter meetings in uh, December of 2025 are going to be lit. And the Nationals are going to have to try to find a way to keep all these guys at that point because they're going to be under a lot of pressure to keep this great pitching staff that helped them get back to the playoffs again with all these savvy veterans that picked up off the scrap heap. Yeah, they're going to have to work really hard to keep them all at that point. I love it. The Nats lead the planet in veteran players not due to be free agents for like another <laughs> 10 years, it feels like. It's, it's, that says a lot about a lot, by the way. Well, we had the Elijah Green show prior to the game on Friday night. Elijah Green, who the Nats took out of IMG Academy in Florida with a number five pick in the 2022 MLB draft that got going on July 17th. He has been signed, so there are no worries here about him uh, not being signed or anything like that. So we knew that he was impressive physically. He's only 18, but he is listed as being 6'3", 225 pounds. He's the son of a former Pro Bowl NFL tight end, Eric Green, who played for the Steelers, among other teams, during a 10-season career in the 1990s. But seeing him up close as you did, seeing the video that the Nats put out of Green interacting with Juan Soto in the Nats locker room, and then seeing some of what he did during batting practice, including some of the StatCast data that was provided from his batting practice, pretty impressive. I mean, he looks already, and I mean physically looks like someone who could play in the majors. We know that that's not going to happen for at least a few years. But man, you talk about looking the part. This kid looks the part. So I'm telling you, if you did not know any better, you would just assume he was a big leaguer. He looked like he belonged with all of them. Physically, right there with Soto. Maybe not quite as bulky, but not far off from it. Josh Bell was calling him a big dude. If Josh Bell is calling you big, you must be big. It was something to see. It's, you know, the only fear would be he's going to keep growing. He's only 18. He's going to fill out as he gets older. And you hope he doesn't lose any of the athleticism as a result of that and now just become this big hulking statue that can't move around in the field. So we'll see. He's got time to 
have that all work out. But yeah, he put on a good show. He also came across just like, you know, when we interviewed him the first time on draft night, very confident, very sure of himself, but much more mature than you would think for an 18 year old. He said when asked, uh, when does he think he might be in the big leagues? He said two to three years, two to three years. That's his goal. So that's age 20 to 21. Hey, stranger things have happened as we've seen with this franchise. Uh, He's now going to West Palm Beach, and now the real grind is about to begin because you're playing under the hot sun with a bunch of kids riding the buses, nobody in attendance. This is going to be a big culture shock, I'm sure, for him. But he seems to have a good head on his shoulders. He seems to know what he's getting into. He comes from an athletic family, obviously. His father, who was here at the ballpark to watch him, is right there by his side all along, and I'm sure has been giving him plenty of advice on how to deal with this. And let's see. Let's see how this pans out. Two weeks after he's drafted, he looks great. But everybody looks great two weeks after they're drafted. Now let's see, as this plays out, does he actually turn into the player they believe he can be? You know, you think about the Nats and what they do have in their farm system. And as we say all the time, the farm system isn't in great shape. But it is particularly struggling in the department of batters, of position players. But three of the more promising position players now are guys who are in their teens, in Elijah Green, Brady House, and also the international signing from a few months back, uh, Christian Vaquero. So look, it may be a while, right, in terms of when the Nats are good again, but the potential does exist, and it's only potential, I get that, but the potential does exist for, say, three years from now, four years from now. You have all three of these guys arriving at the major league level at more or less the same time, and that could be exciting. Again, years down the line, who knows what happens with them, But if you're trying to think about a path to Nationals greatness again, perhaps the path does include that. These three guys in particular, teenage position playing prospects, all three of them well-regarded prospects to varying degrees, and all three could be arriving at the major league level at around the same time. Right. So the only, the downside here would be a couple of things. One is that's a plan that maybe has you starting to be good again in three or four years, as we said. That's not a plan that has you winning in 2024, which is what I think everyone hoped might be the soonest they could do this. That was going to require the older prospects really panning out and them spending some money on things and, you know, things like Strasburg and Corbin being good again, that kind of stuff. So not totally ruling that out yet, but each passing day, and especially if you trade Juan Soto, that's looking less and less likely. So you are pushing it down the road a little ways. The other part is, and this is always going to be true when you draft high school kids or teenagers from Latin America, there are so many things that can happen that change their trajectory, good and bad. It's You're taking a chance on those kids more than you are the college-age kids. Now, often they turn out to be the best players because they're still developing into what they're going to be in the long run, and they, in theory, make it to the big leagues at a younger age and can be stars at a younger age. So you hope they all pan out. The odds are that they won't all pan out, that something will happen with somebody either because of injuries or, you know, they'll start to grow and realize, oh, they can't hit a curveball once they get to double A, things like that. But for the moment, you know, I do applaud them. The farm system is not good. We know that. But I think in the last, you know, 12 to 24 months, there's been a concerted effort to get some really high end athletic talent, especially when it comes to position players. And we're talking about shortstops and center fielders. There's a real priority that's been placed there because you can always move them somewhere else over time. So I give them credit for that. Now you just have to hope that 
number one, they scouted them well. And number two, and this is a big thing, they develop them well because that has been an issue, as we've seen over here for many years. Uh, yes, it has been. Yes, it has been. Vaquero in particular has real upside. From Cuba, made his way to the Dominican Republic. He was ranked by Baseball America as the number one international player who was eligible to sign with a major league team in 2022. So when the Nats signed him back in January, that was almost like an extra, say, like top five pick in a draft. That was a great signing that the Nats made. Now, who knows what he ends up becoming, but that's a high-end prospect who could end up paying off big time for this team down the line. So we're trying to give you optimism. We're trying to give you reasons for hope here. And I think uh, a guy like Vaccaro, a guy like Green, a guy like House, reasons for hope. So Johnny DePuglia, their director of international scouting, and this is somebody who's had a lot of success Juan Soto, others that they've acquired in, at young age from Latin America. He loves this kid. He has been talking him up for a while. Now, he's still in the Dominican. He won't even be coming to the U.S. until next spring, at which point he'll start the long trek up. But DePuglia absolutely loves him, raves about his abilities. And Johnny doesn't just say that about everybody. Uh, and he, maybe more than anybody else, in their overall scouting department across the entire organization, nobody carries as much weight as Johnny does because of his track record for finding these guys. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Our look back at the month that changed everything for the Nats. July 2021 is winding down. And on this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast, we look back at one year since the Nats traded away Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the Los Angeles Dodgers. The news of the trade broke on July 29th. The trade became official on July 30th. This was obviously the biggest deal in the Nationals' massive sell-off last summer, the trading away of eight players for 12 prospects. And we take this time to look back at this trade now. And we thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. Here's the set of the pitch. Fastball. Swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. He struck him out and a curly W is in the books. It's the first Major League save for Kyle Finnegan. And it could be the last victory in a Nationals uniform for Max Scherzer. His 92nd in a Nationals uniform of his 183 career wins. And for Max Scherzer, it'll be his eighth win of this year. Yeah, I mean, I'm a human. I get it. You know, I understand what's going on. Um, it just is what it is. I mean, you know, the game of baseball can throw, you know, so many curveballs at you. I, I've never been in a situation in my career, you know, going through, you know, all the hoopla right now. But today was just a cha- chance to, you know, get challenged and, go, and have to block all that out and have to go out there and just compete. And welcome to an episode unlike any other in the history of this podcast. It's great to have you with us, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, it has been a season that has been like no other in Nationals history. This month of July has been a month like no other in Nationals history. And Thursday, July 29th, 2021, ends up being a day like no other in Nationals history. A day that culminates with the Nationals reportedly agreeing on a blockbuster trade 
with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Max Scherzer is being dealt. Nobody's surprised by that. But Trey Turner is being dealt as well. The Nationals trade Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the Dodgers, get back a horde of prospects, including the Dodgers' top two prospects. There is a lot to get into. There's a lot to unpack with this. There's a lot to process in terms of why this happened, what this means for the future. Mark, you've been covering the team since it came to D.C. Safe to say this is the biggest trade in Nationals history? Uh, yeah, I think that one's safe to say, Al. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else would even come close to qualifying. I mean, you know, there were bizarre, like, nine-player trades. Remember the Austin Kearns-Felipe Lopez trade during the All-Star break? There was nine players in total involved in that, but obviously none of them of this kind of caliber and notoriety or that meant as much to the franchise. When they traded for Alfonso Soriano many years ago for Brad Wilkerson and Termel Sledge, I mean, that felt like a really big deal. And of course it was, but again, we're at a very different stage for this franchise right now. You're talking about two of the heroes of the franchise's first world championship team. You're talking about the first Hall of Famer in Nationals history and another guy who up until, I mean, really just in the last day or two, I think a lot of people thought could be a national for a long time and maybe produce a Hall of Fame career himself. Who knows here? So for that to all come together, I'm just thinking about the last week. And from the day that we talked to Mike Rizzo, which was last, I don't even remember anymore, Tuesday, Wednesday. And when he talked about those dual paths, they might go down. Go by a, a dual path, you know, try and uh, try and maximize our place in the standings, wherever that is, wh- you know, whenever we make that decision. And it was clear in his mind that he was acknowledging that a sell might be necessary, but he really didn't think that that's where they were going. And I didn't really think that's where they were going. And then every single thing that has happened since then, there's about 10 things that have happened since then, all led up to this moment where they got to a point that Rizzo said, we need to sell and we need to sell big. And I know this is a difficult day for a lot of fans and the prospect of what's coming up now the rest of this year and next year is really hard for a lot of people to accept. But in my mind, if you're going to do this, this is the way you have to do it. You got to be all in on it. You have to be committed to it. We don't know if it's going to work. It's going to be several years till we know if it worked. But to me, I think this was the way to go. If you didn't go this way, you got to go completely in the other direction. And as we've talked about the last few days, I don't see how you can have success going in the other direction right now. So I want to commend the Nats. I think what happened on Thursday night is a very good thing. It's a painful thing. It's not something that necessarily puts a smile on your face in the moment. But this to me is the kind of bold, forward-thinking, necessary trade that the Nationals needed to make. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. 